Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, that you come in Christ to give us rest. And my prayer this morning, Lord, is that we would come to understand this rest in fresh ways. Perhaps, Lord, there are some here this morning who have never experienced your rest at all, and I pray that today this would be the first time for them to embrace this rest and to come to know salvation that you offer in Christ. For others of us here, Lord, we've tasted of it, but perhaps uh, lose hold of it and uh, forget about it at times. Lord, help us to be reminded of the rest that we have in Christ. Be with us as we look at your word. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, how are you all doing? That's very good. I am fighting a bit of a cold today, and uh, kind of laying up the last couple days trying to get my game face on. My daughter asked me this morning uh, how I was feeling. I said, well, I'm not, I'm not 100%. And she said, but you look 100%. And I said, that's, that's no doubt true. That's no doubt true. So... But don't be fooled, I am fighting a cold. I'm not going to do my normal, you know, jumping around on stage that I often do. (laughs) If you're new to Calvary, you don't know why that's funny, but stick around and you will. Okay, hey, a quick update on Pastor Todd and Katie. Uh, Katie is going to be having surgery on May 17th, and so as you think about uh, your prayers for them, uh, just be praying towards that. Uh, We are putting together uh, some things that will help meet those needs, and again, it's not all entirely clear yet, uh, but we'll keep keep you updated on those things as well. But continue to pray for them. They're doing well. The prognosis continues to look positive, uh, and so we have a lot to be thankful for with that. Pastor Todd will be uh, preaching next week, and so we look forward to uh, hearing him uh, come back to the pulpit next week. All right, we're continuing on in our sermon series in Matthew. Last week, we looked at chapter 10, where Jesus calls his disciples to a life of radical mission, sends out his 12 as a precursor into the great sending out that will happen at the end of Matthew's gospel. And after he sent out his disciples, we have this new scene, as it were, that happens in Matthew's gospel in Matthew uh, chapter 11. Last week, we saw Jesus at the end of chapter 10 calling his disciples to take up their cross, to come and to die, to be prepared uh, to follow him all the way to death. And here at the end of Matthew chapter 11, we have this open invitation from Jesus for those that are weary to come to him, to take up his yoke and to find rest. And for those who have been laboring in the field of Christ's ministry, Under the cross of Christ, the invitation to come to him and take up his yoke and find rest is no doubt welcome news. True rest uh, can be hard to come by. Is anyone tired this morning? I don't mean tired because you stayed up watching too much TV last night and that's the situation that my sage pastoral advice to you is just to go to bed an hour earlier. But I'm talking about the kind of tired in the soul kind of tired that can plague us? I mean, are you kind of weary in your bones, perhaps tired of carrying the burdens of life, tired of trying to meet the expectations of others, tired of failing to meet the expectations of others, perhaps tired of trying to meet your own expectations and failing, tired of fighting against your sin? Tired of fighting against your coworkers, tired of fighting against your spouse, tired of fighting against your children, tired and not even sure why you're tired. 
If that's you, and it can be me at times, then it's good to be reminded that Christ offers true, deep, soul-quenching rest. Not rest as the world gives, which waxes and wanes and comes and goes, but everlasting, steady rest. My goal this morning as we look at Matthew 11, and particularly at the end of Matthew 11, is to help us understand how it is that Christ offers us his rest. How do we come to access this rest that Christ promises us? What we're going to see is that Christ offers a counterintuitive path to rest, a very different way of entering into rest than the world offers. We've read all of Matthew 11 for context. We're going to focus our attention on the last few verses, 28, 29, and 30. But I do think the context has some relevance for how we understand this passage. And so I want to just draw our attention there to the earlier comments that Matthew makes in 11 as we begin to think about this concept of rest. So if you have your Bible, hopefully you still have it open, Matthew chapter 11, page 816 in your pew Bible. The chapter begins with Herod's imprisonment of John. John was a prophet sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus's ministry. John was a very devout and righteous man. He was not afraid to speak truth to power. And so he began to critique Herod about some immorality in Herod's life. Herod didn't care for that, and he had John arrested and put in prison. So John is now in prison as Jesus launches into his public ministry. And as John is stuck in prison, he apparently begins to experience some doubt about Jesus and whether Jesus is really the one that was sent by God. So John sends his disciples to go ask Jesus if Jesus was the one who was to come or so they should be looking for someone else. Jesus responds to John by recounting the miracles that Jesus has been doing and how the gospel has been going forth. The blind have received sight, the lame have walked, the deaf have here. Go back and tell John these things. Then he says uh, in verse 6, and remind John that blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, John, hang in there. Don't give up on me. Stay the course. But then Jesus turns to the crowds After the disciples of John have left to take back the message, he turns to the crowds and he begins to critique the crowds about their response to John, but then also their response to Jesus. The critique of John was that he led this aesthetic life, this aesthetic life, and he was out in the wilderness. He kind of stayed away from the human trappings and comforts, and he was a prophet kind of in the spirit of Elijah. And so the critique of John was that he was He was this uh, world-denying prophet. But then Jesus came in somewhat the opposite mold, eating and drinking, attending weddings, turning water into wine. And the critique of Jesus was that he was a a glutton. And so Jesus says, you can't be pleased, you people, right? John comes and he has uh, this sort of life and you critique him. I come, I have this sort of life, you critique me. You're a fickle people that can't be pleased. And then from that, Jesus launches into this critique or this condemnation of the cities that he has been traveling in and doing the most of his ministry and his mighty works. And he critiques them for their lack of faith and pronounces judgment upon them. And then out of that, in verse 25, we're moving now more immediately into the context of his comments about rest. 
And I want to reread this passage because this is where I want us to focus our attention. So Matthew eleven, twenty-five through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls." For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So verse 25, Jesus asserts, verse 25 through 27, he asserts the truth that God has given all things to the Son. This gift of revelation to know the Father belongs to the Father. The Father has given this gift of revealing the Father to the Son. The Son, in possessing this gift of revelation, possesses all things And the Son is able to give this gift to whomever he wills. The Son alone, Jesus claims, possesses the ability to give the true knowledge of God and does indeed give it to whomever he wishes. Jesus, in making this claim about himself as Son in relation to the Father, is making a radical, even if indirect, assertion of his divine unity and oneness with the Father. He is claiming divinity for himself. And it's in this context of Jesus' sufficiency that he has as the son of the Father. It's in this context that Jesus calls to himself those who are heavy laden and weary and promises them rest. Jesus, in possessing all things, possesses the ability to give rest to whomever he wills. And Jesus offers this rest to all who will come and learn from him and take upon them his yoke. Now, the idea of a yoke, that's not something that uh, we use here in Oak Park very often, although it is used still around the world. A yoke, I think most of us know, uh, is a device that lays across the shoulder made of wood typically, and it's used for carrying burdens. It helps to, to spread out the weight of burdens that we would carry and and, in, and so yokes in the biblical times would have been used on animals like oxen or donkeys, um, but it also could have been used on people as well, and it was for lifting and carrying heavy burdens. In the Old Testament context, the imagery of the yoke was often used as an imagery of judgment or servitude. And so as the prophets of the uh, Jewish people would speak words of judgment to the faithless generations... The prophets would prophesy that foreign kings would come and place their yoke upon the nation of Israel, forcing the nation of Israel, as it were, to carry their water, to carry their burdens. And so the idea of a yoke was not, on the whole, a positive thing. As a general rule, being yoked wasn't great. At the very least, it meant you were laboring and working. And At its worst, it meant that you were laboring or working for someone else, that therefore you were a servant or you were a slave. And Jesus is taking this imagery of servitude, of labor and toil, and he's saying, 
Come and take upon yourself my yoke. To be under the yoke of Jesus, then, is to come under his sovereignty or his lordship. To be under the yoke of Jesus is to be his servant. It means to carry his burdens, to do his work. And it's in carrying the burdens of Jesus, it's in doing the work of Jesus, it's coming under the sovereignty of Jesus that we find rest. Jesus is telling us that we find rest by surrendering ourselves to his agenda, by ceasing to be our own masters, by letting him command us whatever he deems best, and by carrying his burdens. But how is it that coming under the yoke of Jesus brings us rest? Well, coming under the yoke of Jesus, I think, reminds us of two important truths about ourselves. Truths that are true for all human beings. Coming under the yoke of Jesus, Jesus' invitation to suborn ourselves under him reminds us that we need a master and it reminds us that our master needs to be Jesus. So coming under the yoke of Jesus reminds us that we need a master. And this is a reminder, I think, first for the strong-willed among us. You know who you are. You resist coming under anyone's yoke, even the yoke of Christ. You think that throwing off all yokes and seeking independence, coming out from under submission, that's the way that you will find rest for your soul. You resist being yoked by anyone or by anything. You would be your own master, coming and going as you see fit. You're not going to carry burdens for anybody going to carry only the burdens that matter to you. But Jesus tells us that true rest is found in quite the opposite direction. True rest doesn't come from independence. True rest comes from submission. Ultimately, we are not fit to be our own masters. And deep down inside, if we are honest with ourselves, we all know it. In my sermons, I like to, if I can think of a, an illustration, I like to bring it out to make home the point. This is a, a story that I've told in the past, um, but I couldn't remember in what context I told it, and no doubt neither can you. That's the problem with fun stories, is everyone remembers the story, but they have no idea what the story actually <laughs> meant. But I'm going to tell the story again here, because I think it, it fits really well uh, with the point that I want to make. Also... Uh, It involves my mom, and she came this morning, so this is in tribute to my mother here. But when I was younger, probably around eight, nine, or ten years old, uh, my brothers and I, we began to uh, take an interest, I don't know why, in piano, and so we begged our parents to buy a piano so we could take piano lessons. So my parents went out. You can imagine not just even the expense, but the ordeal of dragging a piano into the house. And in about three weeks, we hated the piano and wanted nothing (laughs) to do with it. And so I just remember vividly having these major wars, particularly with my mom, over having to practice piano. And and I resisted her at every turn. There were often tears uh, involved. And I remember uh, one one time in particular, I was being forced under the yoke of the piano lordship, and I was, 
I was having to practice, and I, and I remember getting more and more dramatic and frustrated. And at one point, I made a bolt for it. I threw off the yoke, ran upstairs, and I was in tears. Uh, I think uh, just dramatic tears and crying, ran up the stairs uh, away from the piano. And my mom uh, came up after me in hot pursuit. And <laughs> at the top of, this, of our stairs, we had a, a bathroom that has double doors. And so I... I took evasive action into one door. My mom didn't see me go in, and she ran past, and I was able to sneak out the other door and back down the stairs. And as I was heading down the stairs, I could hear my mom upstairs in my bedroom looking for me and calling for me. And I remember I was uh, out of control enough that as I got towards the bottom of the stairs, I began, and I can still remember it even to this day, but I, I remember being very unsettled that I had given my mom the slip. Because I think, now I don't, didn't quite have this all figured out at the time, but looking back, I think this is what was going on, is I knew I was sufficiently out of control that I was not able to regulate myself. And I needed, I needed my mom to regulate me, but I had just, I had just left her upstairs looking for me. So here I am downstairs out of control with no one to regulate me. And this, I think, is true with us as human beings. We're not nine-year-olds practicing the piano, but we find ourselves in places in life where we recognize, if we are fully honest with ourselves, that we cannot self-regulate, that we do not have the capacity to be our own masters. And we think that throwing off the yoke, giving God the slip, as it were, is going to bring peace and freedom but it doesn't bring peace and freedom. In the end, like this nine-year-old boy escaping his mom, it brings fear because it means that we are the only thing that stands between us and chaos. And if we know who we are, we recognize that we don't have what it takes to stand between us and chaos. It is only when we surrender ourselves to Christ's ways, to his wisdom, to take up his yoke and his guiding control that we find rest. And Jesus knows of what he speaks. He's just told us in the few verses before this that he is the son to whom the father has given all things. The son is high and exalted, yet he is also at the same time, he tells us, lowly and humble of heart. He is the paradigmatic example of what it means to live a surrendered life. Jesus, in a very real sense, as we see him in the Gospels, has lived a life in which he has taken upon himself the Father's yoke. John 16, or John 6, 38, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but do the will of him who sent me. Jesus, who has infinite rest at his disposal and is able to dispense it to whomever he wills, has this rest at his disposal precisely because he is lowly and humble in heart precisely because he has chosen to submit himself to the Father's will, above and beyond his own preferences. When Jesus invites his listeners to come and learn from him, he means, come and learn from me what it is to be lowly and humble and surrendered to God's call upon your life. He means, come from me and learn what it is to cease striving in your own strength, thinking that you must be your own master, supplying all your needs and caring for your every want. At what places in your life are you tempted 
to resist the yoke of Christ? Where are you wrongly tempted to think that you are better off serving as your own overlord? Christ would place upon you the yoke of his rest, but in your misguided quest for independence, you keep throwing it off. Do you not see that in resisting his yoke, his lordship over your life, you are cutting yourself off from the very thing that you seek? Lay aside your pride. Lay aside your misbegotten sense of your own self-sufficiency. Humble yourself and take upon yourself the yoke of Christ. Acknowledge his lordship in your life. If the Son, who holds all things in his hands, is yet lowly and humble of heart, how much more should we be lowly and humble of heart? If Jesus was willing to submit to the yoke, how much more should we be willing to submit to the yoke? Or do we think that we are better than Jesus? We are not. So the invitation by Christ to wear his yoke reminds us that we need a master. It also reminds us that our master needs to be Jesus. Not any old yoke will do. Not any old master can place his yoke upon us and give us rest. The temptation, I think, for most of us is not to seek radical independence. That's not most of us probably with our personalities. But rather, we're tempted to seek other masters besides Christ. We surrender ourselves to lesser gods who place upon our necks heavier yokes. We mistakenly think that something or someone other than Jesus is more likely to provide us rest. Perhaps we think that wearing the yoke of the opinion of others is a more likely path to peace. Or the yoke of pleasure, or the yoke of success, or the yoke of our own perfectionistic standards. The world proposes a nearly endless, limitless variety of yokes that claim to offer rest, but none of them can truly, deeply satisfy. In the end, these kind of yokes that we would take upon us only serve to take away rest rather than to provide rest. But why is it that working under Jesus' yoke provides rest while working under the yokes of the world diminishes rest and takes it away? I think the answer is found in verse 27 when Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by the Father. Jesus possesses all things. And he is the only master whose yoke is light and gives rest because Jesus is the only master who does not need our labor. Jesus does not give us his burdens to carry because he is in need, because they are too heavy for him. He gives us his burdens to carry because he knows what will, that they will be good for us. He knows what will grow us and make us whole. He asks us to carry his burdens for our sake, not for his sake. Gave a parenting illustration with my mother. My dad is also here, so I want to even this out. <clears throat> I remember, as, uh, as again, as a child, uh, my dad did quite a bit of projects around the house. Uh, I don't ever remember him calling anyone to do anything at the house that we paid money for. He did it all himself. 
And he would often uh, try to drag us along as kids to, to you know, fix things so we could see how he would do it. And um, <clears throat> I can assure you now, being a father that tries to do things around the house, that inviting children to come and share your burden or take up your yoke does not make your life easier, right? <laughs> a 10-minute project of changing out an electrical outlet can become a 20-minute project of changing out an electrical outlet if you invite your children to come and share your labor and your yoke. But the reason that fathers or mothers invite their children to come and share their labor is not because the parent needs help. The reason that parents invite the children to come and share the labor is because the children need help. Because the children need to learn what it is to grow into the kind of adulthood that that becomes an independent person that is able to accomplish things. And Jesus is inviting us to come and share his yoke and learn from him in the same way that a parent invites a child to come and share the parent's yoke and learn from him. Because it's in the doing of the Lord's work that we receive, <clears throat> that we receive the blessing that the Lord would want to give. The other taskmasters of the world place burdens upon us to make their lives easier. But Jesus doesn't place burdens upon us to make his life easier. In fact, it makes his life far more complicated to place his burdens upon us. Scripture that Donin even read for us this morning out of the Gospel of Mark makes this point. Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve. And the invitation to take up his yoke is him serving us, not us serving him. Laboring under Christ's yoke is the only labor that will enlarge your soul and bring you peace. Throw off every yoke except the yoke of Christ. Christ's yoke is the only yoke that gives rather than takes, that lifts up rather than weighs down. Every other master will take from you. Jesus is the only master who gives to you. So what yoke this morning... Or perhaps whose yoke are you tempted to labor under rather than Christ's? <clears throat> Do you try to find rest under the yoke of the approval of others in meeting the expectations of everyone around you until you no longer know which end is up and have lost all sense of yourself? Do you try to find rest under the yoke of your own high expectations for yourself? yet find that you can never measure up and live with a latent sense of failure no matter how hard you try? Do you try to find rest by taking upon yourself the yoke of success, of performance, of production, of winning, of being the best, yet find that you live in fear that you will slip up, that you will be found out, that it will all come crashing down? Do you try to find rest by taking upon yourself the yoke of comfort, just one more season of my favorite Netflix show before I go to bed, you tell yourself. <laughs> Yet find that your attempts to indulge your flesh only leave your soul feeling more tired, more spent. You're serving the wrong master. You've taken up the wrong yoke. Those yokes will only drain you and take away rest. They will not provide it. Surrender your life only to Christ. Live your life to please him only. 
to be guided by him only, to trust him only, to work for him only. Subordinate all other demands upon your life to his demand. If you don't have rest in your life, it's almost certainly because you are trying to serve the wrong master. When we labor to please Christ, the one who is eternally pleased with us, we find ourselves becoming all that we were meant to be, learning from him what it means to be a true human being, living in dependence upon our heavenly Father. But when we labor to please anyone or anything else, we exhaust ourselves. There is so much freedom in surrendering to the Lordship of Christ. There is so much rest in coming under his yoke. So today we stand as needy people, needy people who need a master, and needy people who need a master who gives to us. And Jesus is that master. So the yoke of Jesus reminds us that we need a master and that our master needs to be Jesus. Taking communion this morning, and as we begin to turn our thoughts to communion, communion is for us a picture of Christ's life that he offers to us through his death, this this counterintuitive juxtaposition of life and death. And I think in Matthew chapter 10 and in Matthew chapter 11, we see this counterintuitive dynamic at work with Jesus' call to his disciples to take up the cross of death and follow him and to come take up his yoke of rest and follow him. How do we bring these things together? How are we to understand the relationship between the cross, which calls us to die, and the yoke, which calls us to come find rest? I think the way that Matthew recounts the narrative of John the Baptist helps us understand the relationship between the cross and the yoke. When Jesus speaks of the yoke at the end of Matthew 11, as we've been looking at, he is only there finishing the discourse that he began at verse 7 when he was asked about John. John's disciples have left. Jesus turns to the crowds, and he begins to talk to them about John as a segue into his comments about judgment, the sufficiency of the Son, and then ultimately finding rest. John sits in Herod's prison, John sits in Herod's prison, uncertain about the future. He's been laboring on Christ's behalf. He's paid the consequences for it. He's uncertain if his work will amount to anything. He's picked up his cross. He's followed after God's will, but it's only landed him in prison. And indeed, in only three chapters later, John will pay the ultimate price and will be beheaded at the hands of Herod. In the midst of John's doubt and confusion and perhaps even bordering on despair, Jesus sends back word to John to keep faith. He sends back word to John to stay the course, to not give up. His admonition to John, he ends his admonition to John by reminding John that if he perseveres, he will be blessed, which is to say, if he does not turn away from Jesus, he will find rest. I think we see in Jesus' admonition to John the relationship between the cross and the yoke. When we willingly and faithfully persevere 
under the cross of death, we find that the splintered beam of the cross becomes the smooth and easy yoke. Perhaps you labor on Christ's behalf this morning and the wooden beam that is upon your back doesn't feel like the easy yoke. It feels more like the splintered cross. I think we go through seasons in life like that. And I would say to you what Jesus said to John. I would say to you what I think Jesus says to you this morning through his scriptures. Stay the course. Remain faithful. The transforming power of the gospel will not fail you. In God's time, under the wise sovereignty of our master, the cross of death will become a yoke of rest. Jesus doesn't just offer us a cross on which to die. In the power of his omnipotence, the cross on which we die becomes the yoke that we find rest in. It takes faith to believe that when Christ is offering us his cross, that he will, in his power, turn it into a yoke of rest. It takes faith and perseverance. But like John, let's not give up. Let's chase after Christ down the road that he would have us walk, knowing that he calls us down this road, not for his sake, not to serve him because he's in need, but he calls us down this road for our sake, because we're in need, and because we will be blessed if we persevere and do not give up. Father, we thank you that you have given us Christ. We thank you that you have given us one who is able to take a cross and turn it into a yoke. God, we recognize uh, that we are so tempted. We acknowledge this morning that we are so tempted to try to either seek after our own independence to throw off all yokes, or we are tempted to chase down lesser masters and take upon them their yokes. But Lord, we don't want to exhaust ourselves. We acknowledge our need of a master, and we acknowledge that our master needs to be Jesus. And so God, give us uh, a fresh uh, perspective of faith to believe this to be true, and to take upon ourselves the yoke of Christ, and in doing so, find the rest that he promises. In Jesus' name, we pray this. Amen.